Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Tabs Magazine. Today on the show, to talk about the start of the baseball season and the ending of the European football season, we're happy to welcome back to the show Awful Announcing's managing editor, Joe Lucia. We're going to talk about the first week of the season, who are the winners and losers and so far. Has anybody dug themselves into a hole too deep to... Uh, escape. Who is the biggest heel in baseball? Is it Bryce Harper or is it Rob Manfred? And what other world league commissioner does Rob Manfred most remind us of? We also talk about the end of the Premier League season. Can Man City hold on? Can they win the quadruple? And if they can't, who will? Uh, I just want to let everybody know as we teased last episode, we are going to be appearing at the two-man power trip TMPT3 convention in Richmond in May. Uh, at that show also are going to be uh, Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express, including Dennis Condry, the Rock and Roll Express, J.J. Dillon, and a host of other people. So we hope to have a new issue debut at the show. So if you're coming to the show, please come by and say hello. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. We need a hit, so here I go. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. It's the start of baseball season and the ending of the European football season to talk about those things and maybe some other things. We're happy to welcome back to the show Awful Announcing's managing editor, Joe Lucia. How's it going, Joe? Going very well, Mark. Thanks for having me today. I guess we can start. Uh, I haven't seen any updates lately because I haven't really been on the net. But uh, since you're a Braves fan, what's the latest on Bobby Cox? Uh, no real news. He's in the hospital recovering. He apparently is communicating and all that. So it seems like the worst was avoided. But it's actually kind of funny because on Monday night, he kind of like opened up the season or whatever and he did not really look that great. And then last night, the news comes down about his stroke, and it's just like, oh, I did not exactly want to predict that, but I kind of sort of did a little bit. Well, I'm glad uh, things at least are not as bad as they appear. Um, we've pretty much played about a week of the real season so far, if we don't really count the two games in Japan, although we'll get to the two games in Japan eventually since uh the biggest news of the season may be so far that Ichiro finally retired. But uh, we've played about a week for most teams. Uh, there are some surprises, both good and bad. Um, Seattle is 7-1. and one. The Twins are 4-1. and one. The Mets are 5-1. and one. The Brewers are 6-1. and one. Um, Just, and I guess Tampa Bay, maybe. Tampa Bay is leading the American League East. Um, which of those do you think is really the biggest surprise? I, we should caveat everything that we're going to say is it's been a week. But after a week, what's the biggest surprise you've seen so far? I mean, the Orioles are 4-2. and two. I didn't know if they would win four games in like the first four weeks of the season. They looked so terrible. And they've gone 4-2 and two on the road, won a series at Yankee Stadium, and won a series in Toronto. Uh, I mean, I mean – 
it wasn't the most impressive six games this season. They still have a negative run differential despite this four and two record, but they looked like they had such a terrible roster that I thought they were going to lose 115 games on the season. And just to get off that four and two start, you know, it's uh, it's something special, even if it's not going to last very long at all. Well, that's how I feel about my barely out of first place San Diego Padres, who are four and three. I mean, I guess that you know the Giants are anything any great shakes that they you know beat in the opening series, but you know that might be the highest above five hundred that they're all season. And you know, we've got a brand spanking new expensive player, so I guess that's a little not surprising. But I'm you know I'll take it when I can get it, even after a week in the season so far. I actually think the Padres could stick around for a while, flirt with five hundred all year. I mean. Bring bring in Machado, obviously the big move that caught a lot of attention, but they uh, brought Fernando Tatis up to start the season on the main roster. Didn't play any service time games with him. Uh, I kind of really like that rotation too. It's really young and exciting, and uh, Chris Paddock, Joey Lucchese, those are guys that are like legit stud looking prospects and. Uh, I don't really like that division. I mean, you got the Diamondbacks who are kind of rebuilding now, the Giants who are full-blown rebuilding. I don't think the Dodgers are as good as they're going to be last year. I don't think the Rockies are going to be as good. I think the Padres could kind of uh, be a low-key interesting team to watch this season. Well, I always say I go into the, I go into the season with the, my goals are always, first, don't lose 100 games. Then try to be 500, and then after that, it's all gravy. I mean, it's it's a team that's only been to the World Series twice in its history and never won. So I mean, you don't you don't have the highest expectations. That's like, that's kind of like your Everton fandom, how you don't really have to set the bar too high for it to be considered a successful season. But yeah, I mean, with the Padres, I mean, just don't stink out the joint; you'll be fine. I mean, I, that's generally my. Uh, my sporting fandom, like the one exception is, are the Red Wings. But, you know, I started being a fan of them when they were horrible. Like people don't remember how horrible they were in like the early, like early Iserman years, you know, when they were just terrible. Like they just remember the 20 years success. But it's like, yes, they used to be really, really bad. So, but yeah, generally the teams I support are like the, uh, occasionally good, usually above average. You know, it used to. You know, when I still watched football, I was a Lions fan. So you know, it's you know the the parallels between like the Lions and the Padres when it's like you know always terrible, occasionally good. Had the sort of quiet superstar that you know Gwynn and Sanders were kind of similar. So it's but uh, yeah, it's just the way. That's the way it goes. I'm happy when I occasionally win, but I don't I don't like being a fan of the overdog. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Whereas my teams are mostly well, I mean, varying degrees of above average in a five hundred season is very disappointing. And you never know when your team will be bought by a, a sal or a, a Gulf oil state and suddenly, you know, become the one of the biggest teams in the world. 
I know the funny thing about that is, I mean, like a lot of Americans, I started watching the Premier League when NBC got the rights back in 2013. And, like, I didn't have a huge knowledge. I just picked the team I thought was most exciting, and City was the most exciting to me. And then I started finding out about the history pre-takeover and the takeover, and it's just like, eh, well, screw it. Let's stay on board. It wasn't – I didn't re- – I sort of had forgotten, like, when you said that, that – I noticed when I was watching the NBC cover, when they were doing that thing at Fenway Park last week, you know, and they mentioned that, like, this is, like, their sixth season. And I'm like, really? It just, it does not seem that long ago that I remember, you know, like, having to watch games, you know, on the Fox Soccer Channel or or even before that when, you know, when dodgy streams really were dodgy because, you know, not everybody had broadband. Oh man, that that really takes me back. And that that's kind of like uh, bootlegging uh, UFC or WWE pay per views back in the day too, when it was kind of difficult to actually legitimately buy them when you didn't have you know a lot of disposable income, so you had to just kind of resort to some kind of third rate stream or scramble vision or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean we didn't get cable until like the late '80s, so. Like, I didn't, I mean, we were still buying, like, we were getting the videotapes of, like, wrestling events before, you know, we didn't, we didn't even have pay-per-view then. So it was like, we waited for the, the videos to come out, or ordering them out of PWI or something like that. Oh, man, that, whew, that takes me back, the uh, magazines with all of the random comp tapes listed in the backs of them, that, whew. Oh, that reminds me. I was just, just think you, about paying twenty dollars for a VHS tape these days. Well, I was listening to uh, the Six of Five podcast the other, or an old episode, and Brian last had on one of the guys that worked for I forget the name, but the guys who made those videos they sold in PWI, the the Lords of the Ring video, and the the first Great American Bash pay per view. Or, uh, well, before they were pay-per-views. And, yeah, so they were they were priced to rent back then. But they apparently cut a deal with their distributor or whoever, like, owned the rights. They basically bought their own copies back at, at cost and then sold them themselves through PWI. So they were charging, like, yeah, twenty nine, thirty nine, something like that. Because I remember, I remember buying the first, the first Crockett Cup, and I guess Starcade eighty six. I guess from like directly from Jim Crockett ads in PWI, and those things were the barest of bare, where they basically came in a black shell case that just had like a label that had like the, the time codes on it and then said like Crockett cup. And I don't even, it may not have even actually had a label on the VHS itself. And it was, you just imagine that they're in their little tiny strip mall offices in Charlotte, just like dubbing these themselves probably. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was always so just kind of low key like that. Whereas now it's just, so high tech and done so quickly. The other thing I'm sure you'll appreciate this is uh, when we were in high school. So this is like the, the, the late eighties, 
we actually used the PWI magazines to do to have a rotisserie league where we actually used the PWI standings for points. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. And I think I had his description at the time, so I believe uh, – and I was the commissioner, so there may have been the occasional uh, – I'm going to you know, suddenly drop Jerry Lawler and pick up Bill Dundee. I wonder why. And then like, the magazine came the next week, and it was like, oh, it's because Lawler won the belt again. And like, oh, imagine that. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, when we did rotisserie baseball in high school, I had to – it was the thing where – we got the USA Today twice a week when they printed the stats, and I typed them up myself into the computer to calculate everything. And all we did were, you know, we used counting stats. It was like batting average, I think, home runs and RBIs, and I guess stolen bases, and then wins, saves, whip, and... I think there there had to be a fourth category, but it was like the very basics. It was, and just like looking back now, it just seems so amazingly primitive. It's so much effort. I remember like maybe ten years ago, I would have to like hand count fantasy or fantasy football stats, which are so much easier. And for like one team, it would take me a half hour. I'd have to go to so many different websites. I could only imagine what it would be like to compile a week's worth of data for a Roto Baseball League. Oh, man. Like I said, it was just you get the USA Today twice a week, and then, you know, I had it on a spreadsheet, and it was just – I would just type the numbers in. So – and again, when you're a nerd in high school, it's not like, you know, you have – you're that busy. You know, it's not not like I had – you know, it's not like I had a girlfriend at that point or anything. (laughs) That's very true. I do remember those days with the uh, not doing a whole lot, so just hunker down with numbers and see what goes on. So, look again, looking at the standings, you know, you've got all these teams that, you know, are sort of surprisingly good at the moment, but then you've got some really weird outliers at the bottom now. Like, New York and Boston have been terrible. The Angels have been terrible. Your Braves has not necessarily set the world on fire either. So it's like the Yankees have had a bunch of injuries, but, like, what's the deal with Boston so far? Boston just has not put it together. Their starting pitching has been terrible. Chris Sales got lit up in both of his starts right after they signed with that big extension, by the way. I, I really didn't like Boston's offseason because they really just kind of – they had that great team, but they really just kind of stood pat with it. Lost Craig Kimbrell, didn't do – whole lot of anything to reinforce what they had going on there so that was that was a little shocking from a front office that's usually kind of progressive and forward thinking the yankees have never been sold on that starting rotation so i didn't expect them to obviously be two and four through six games but again it's six games and sample sizes like that will happen uh look through the rest of the division i mean houston's two and four i thought they were going to cruise this year uh the braves are one and three about two innings away from going one and four their bullpen has just been so bad this season that's pretty much been the reason for i believe all of their losses so uh talking of the Braves, what was your thoughts on the uh acuna contract 
I'm thrilled with it. It's almost too team friendly. That's what I, I yeah I heard uh, I heard someone on the radio say today that yeah that this is like the most you know like five or ten years from now or whatever we'll be back looking back at this and going why did they sign this contract I mean from the from the player point of view people are comparing it to the first Evan Longoria contract ten years ago that he signed when he had like ten games in the majors and Ronnie got his deal. After a rookie of the year season, it can max out at 10 years and only $124 million, which is, I want to say, this similar amount of money to what Xander Bogart's got in Boston. He's never had the kind of a season Acuna did last year, and he still has MVP potential. I mean, even if he only, like, does what he does last year over the life of the contract, I mean, it's still a bargain, and he'll still hit free agency again at probably 30 if they exercise both options. Is this Alex? Is this another uh, Alex Ninja move, or how— why do you think Acuna signed it, I guess, is the question. Well, a lot of the reasoning, I think, is last year, a game in Boston, he stepped awkwardly on the first base bag, and the injury looked really bad. It was one of those where he's, like, down, clutching his knee, and it looked like it could have all been blown to shreds. Thankfully, it was just a sprain. Then he comes back in the second half, has that second half he does, and ends up winning the rookie of the year. And I think that might have kind of put some thought to his head. What if it was a blown-out patella tendon or a completely ruptured ACL or something like that? It's going to take a lot of time to come back. That could have really hurt his future earning potential, and he can still you know, get money now if he just signs this – contract that'll have him and his family set up for life as opposed to waiting and potentially getting even more money in six years cool uh speaking of contracts i'm just i was looking at the early season stats and uh again it's been a week but i see one name leading leading the majors in uh on base and slugging and with an OPS of 1.84, it's the world's biggest heel, Bryce Harper. So, <laughs> so I guess, he, I mean, we saw the, the monster shot he hit against Washington. So uh, safe to say that he's started the season nicely red hot. And, like, that Phillies lineup is so loaded. I feel like there's less pressure on him. He's walked, I think, like eight times already this season. He's got Reese Hoskins behind him mashing. Andrew McCutcheon and Gene Segura in front of him getting on base and hitting really well. There's no easy out in that Phillies lineup. He's, he doesn't have to be the guy that drives in all the runs and is the hero every night. I think in Philly, it's I actually think it's a bit more of a low-key atmosphere compared to what he was with in uh, D.C. Because in Washington, you know, he's the first overall pick. He's the savior of the franchise. He's the guy that, like, uh, everyone is counting on. Whereas in Philly, he's just a cog in another, an expensive cog in an expensive, large machine there to feed diehard fans, and I think he's just kind of enjoying it a lot. He's really kind of saying the right things to endear himself to the fans. He's playing to the crowd a lot, and they're just all eating it up, and it could not have gotten off to a better start for him. 
Well, certainly showing up, was it opening day where he showed up wearing the uh, the gritty shirt? It It's a shirt that I actually ordered like a half hour after I saw it. It's Gritty and the Fanatic reenacting a pose from Pulp Fiction. Gritty's holding a t-shirt cannon and the Fanatic's holding a hot dog cannon. It's amazing. And like everyone sees that on Twitter and there's just, just this full-blown meltdown. This is incredible. He knows what he's doing. I need that shirt. It worked like a gem. Well, again, if you know, if he's smart and, like I said, he embraces being a heel, then in Philly they will love him. I mean, you know, you used to live out here. Like I live close enough to Philly that I'm in the technically in the Philadelphia media market. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where you know he's absolutely hated by everybody else, which means he will be adored in Philadelphia. Yeah, and he said something after the Nationals game last night, his return to D.C. is like, I wanted to make sure that there were no Nats fans in right field before I saluted them because I saw all these Phillies fans out there, but I didn't want to accidentally, like, give love to a Nationals fan. So, like, after the, like, seventh inning or whatever, where it's just Phillies fans out there in a blowout, he goes out there and starts bowing and fist-bumping, and the Phillies fans are just eating it all up so if <clears throat> so if brace is not actually the biggest heel in baseball uh i know based on your twitter feed and i don't necessarily disagree uh, is it possible the actual biggest heel in baseball is the commissioner oh god rob manford is a tool i i have such an incredible dislike for this guy who always kind of likes to claim he's listening and doing the right thing, but the guy has no idea what he's doing. He's actively trying to destroy the game and turn it into something it's not, and I'm really just kind of over it. But the fact that he's making money for the owners means the owners absolutely adore him, and I think his reign has actually somehow, someway been worse than Bud Selig's, and it kind of reminds me of someone like Bowie Kuhn, who was thought of highly at the time for whatever reason, but history has not looked kind upon him for many reasons. The comparison that I was going to make, which I'm sure you'll appreciate, is Manfred is almost like Johnny Infantino, where he looked like a good candidate when he was elected, especially considering his predecessor, and now he just continued to make horrible move after horrible move, largely motivated financially. And I don't know. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't think of that, but that's a good one. I do like that. I mean, if you think about if you're longing for Bud, I mean, I've heard people, you know, saying, I never thought I'd say that we'd want set the ladder back. But, you know, if, if Infantino is just, you know, beholden to all of this, the you know, the salty money that may you know, revamp the World Cup and this Club World Cup thing and all these other things, and they would just do horrible damage. It's, you know, just to, you know, to line everyone's pockets, and all he needs to do is, much like Platter, is like you curry favor with enough countries, it's one country, one vote. So, you know, you pay off, you know, you quote-unquote contribute to enough, you know, countries in Africa and Asia and, that's almost your majority, no matter what Europe or Calm the Ball or CONCACAF may want to do. Yeah, I kind of look at it as uh, 
Johnny Baby is secretly corrupt while Set Bladder was openly corrupt and everyone knew it, but they just kind of tolerated it because it wasn't that damaging while good old Johnny Baby tries to claim like he's not corrupt and he's here for the love of the game and the good of the game and all that, but he is just uh, actively bad. And it's funny that some of the Manfred ideas, like originally I did not completely disagree with but it's like you know i did not necessarily want to see the pitching clock but it you know it sounds like you know the people that have seen it in the miners think it's not really as horrible as everyone feared but some of this tinkering like who changes the distance to the mound it's like you know there's being a purist and not want to change the game and it's like Raising the mound, I understand, but actually changing the 60 feet 6 inches is so weird, I can't even wrap my head around it. About the pitch clock, I mean, that's exactly how I feel about it. Like, I went to my first game in the minors, what was it, two or three years ago with the pitch clock. And, like, the first game, I was there, and I was going to, like, watch the pitch clock, and I forgot about it after the third inning. The guys weren't, like, coming close to hitting the end of it, and the pitch clock was only running maybe, like, two or three at-bats an inning. It's not like it's constantly on. So eventually you just forget about it. It fades away. Nobody cares about it. There's never any violations. So the whole point of the pitch clock ends up being proven correct. But as to your other point about stuff like moving back the mound, I kind of like the way they're using the Atlantic League as kind of like a uh, playground for some of these new rules. But then you hear some of the things they say, like with the uh, pitch clock, it was just like, well, it's just the Atlantic League. If people get hurt, who cares? I mean, the Atlantic League has a lot of former major league pitchers in it. And if they hear that the commissioner doesn't care if they get hurt or not, they're not going to the Atlantic League. So you're not really getting the proper sample for these new rules. So it ends up being worthless. The guy should really just kind of realize what he's saying and maybe kind of limit some of these stupid comments. Well, I mean, we've already seen in the last couple of years, you know, there's the growing movement of actually people wanting minor leaguers to actually be, you know, given, you know, a, a decent standard of living. But, you know, ba- you know, baseball doesn't really care about the minor leaguers. I mean, personally, and the union doesn't care because they're not members, so they're not going to fight for them. So, but yeah, some of those things like the mound thing, the starting a putting a runner at second base and in extra innings, and a lot of these really weird ones. It's just where are these? You know, it's 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 funny because you know part of it is it's baseball and baseball doesn't change. And you look at say, you know, football tinkers with the rules all the time and nobody cares. Basketball is you know tweaked the rules over the years. Hockey is more like baseball, where when they try and change stuff, people complain, and then a year or two later, everybody seems fine with it as long as they're not really fundamental, like you know, making the nets bigger or something stupid like that. But it's baseball. It's like there's all this dumb tinkering where it's like you know the game's cyclical. We're already seeing, you know, we're now seeing. I heard someone say today that you know there's now this new emphasis on on. Um, pitchers throwing the high strike, you know, and that's one of the reasons like the offense is down, like in the first week so far, sort of across the board is, but again, people are going, people are going to adapt. That's why, you know, I don't want to see any rules about the shift or rules about this weird opener thing. It's like 
people will adapt. We don't need rules to change them. Yeah, exactly. Like we're already seeing teams playing around with the shift and we're seeing more like a four outfielder defenses more often. And something I've always thought of with the shift as a way to like avoid that is like, why can't you like designate your third baseman as like the center fielder on the lineup card, but just line him up at third base instead of center field is there some kind of rule against that the fact that like there are some of these weird proposals out there it's just like you don't understand why quote unquote the games are taking longer you want more offense without realizing more offense is going to make the games last longer that's the whole point of things if there's more balls in play and more hits there's more runners on base which means there's more pitches and more at-bats, which means dun, 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 the games are longer. It's not the game itself you have to change. It's the mid-inning breaks. It's all the garbage dead time. That's what you need to get rid of. Well, again, you know, I've heard people you know, say this, and I sort of agree. It's like it's not, it's not the time issue per se. It's the flow issue. And, like, you know, if you're at a good game, it doesn't feel long. But, yeah, if, you know, this – you know, three outcome thing, and it's like so many strikeouts and two and a half minute ad breaks that, you know, that's, again, you know, when baseball starts, you know, cutting uh, between innings like to a minute and a half instead of two and a half minutes or three minutes, then, you know, it's like, then we'll talk. But like the tinkering and making, oh, we made progress. Our games were seven minutes shorter last year. Yeah, no one, no one cares about seven minutes. Seven minutes does not matter in the grand scheme of things. That's like three ad breaks. I mean, you can do a lot better than that. No one cares if a game is 2.53 or three hours. It does not matter one bit. <clears throat> so, so after the first week, um, do you think any of your – are you fearful of any of your preseason predictions, which, of course – are always loaded anyway, but I mean, even Boston at one, I mean, has anybody dug a hole they can't get out of? I mean, you know, the, again, uh, I mean, this year, I don't think anyone really has dug themselves too deep of a hole yet, just because like we've been saying, it's one week. Any team can have one bad week, but I think there are some things you can take away from the first week that are like kind of warning signs that you can go off of like, the Braves pitching staff, the uh, the members of the rotation have not gone deep into the game at all. That's putting more stress on the bullpen. That's bad. Uh, the Nationals bullpen and the Cubs bullpen have both been absolutely terrible, and they need to do something to shore that up. Otherwise, they're not going to be contenders. Uh, I think Milwaukee's offense and pitching staff have somehow both been better than expected, and that's something you can take away from because they don't necessarily need to panic unless somebody else gets hurt. Those are things that I think you can kind of draw conclusions from from the first week without going too crazy and immediately throwing everything out the window. So do you think is somebody going to – is one of those teams going to quickly try and sign Kimbrell? Uh, I mean – I think the Cubs should try to sign him because this horror show display I'm watching right now from their bullpen really indicates they need another guy in the bullpen, but they've been crying poverty all winter, so who knows if they actually will. 
Milwaukee just lost Corey Knable to Tommy John. Kimball would be a fit there, but I'm not sure if they would want to pony up even more of the money. It's really just kind of a wait-and-see situation, but I do think he'll end up signing by the draft in uh, early June. Cool. Uh, so I guess we can conveniently segue. Before you watched all of your baseball tonight, you were watching Man City uh, comfortably take care of Cardiff uh, in the Premier League. We had joked uh, yesterday when I said that you know we were going to record last night instead of tonight, and I said, well, we'll at least wait until after Man City demolishes Cardiff. And I think you said... You know, you were worried on the your your worry level was about at a two, and then today you said I think you may have overestimated the two. It's like was was it as bad as you would have expected if you didn't watch the game? Uh, I mean, the two nil scoreline was very flattering to Cardiff because City missed so many chances it could have been four nil in the first 10 minutes it was just brutal second half didn't score at all their keeper was actually pretty good made a number of nice saves i think that's kind of what we're seeing a lot with city this year they're dominating most of their matches they play but they're having trouble kind of racking up some of the big score lines, even though they they picked up plenty of the big score lines this year. They haven't gotten as many as I think we would have expected from the overall performances, either due to strong goalkeeping or just flat out missed chances. But overall, this was pretty much what I thought it was going to be. I thought Cardiff might be a little pluckier, but then I remembered it's Cardiff and not a team that actually can be competent like Palace or Newcastle. So I think my uh, concern level yesterday was probably a little too high, thinking that uh, Cardiff is a side that they weren't. Yeah, right now their goal difference is plus nine over Liverpool, and presumably today would have been a good day to maybe maybe bump that up a little. But still, you know, nine is you know nothing to sh- shake a stick at. Yeah, and City also have a point advantage, so the goal difference is only going to come into play if if this two sides end up tying. And I think the confluence of events that would need to have that happen over these last, I believe, six matches are... I, I think it's a little out there for it to uh, end up being decided on goal difference, but obviously any type of... Uh, uh, goals they can get compared to Liverpool will be a good thing. But Liverpool haven't exactly been putting the goals on the board either. I mean, it seems like every week City's just kind of ticking up that goal difference a little more because Liverpool is just only winning by a goal or two and not kind of taking advantage of the opportunities they have. Yeah. All right, so what's your, what's your uh, confidence level of retaining your title? Do you think it's are you mainly worried about all those three matches against Spurs that you're going to have in quick succession? Is that where the biggest blip might be? Uh, I'm honestly kind of concerned about the uh, – there's a Palace match kind of wedged in, in right in between uh, all the Spurs matches. And I think that one could be low-key difficult because Palace – I mean, they beat City this year earlier at the Etihad. Uh, last year at Selhurst Park, they were the they were the team that 
broke City's winning streak with a uh, nil-nil draw. They've played us very tough at Selhurst in recent years. So it really could be a situation where they just kind of uh, bring the noise, bring the metal, and just uh, scrape out a point, which would not be the best thing this time of year. So if you're okay on the league, what is, what's your gut feeling on the quadruple? Is it possible, quote-unquote, maybe probable, or is it just, are we still too far out to, to really think about it as a reality? Uh, we're absolutely not too far out because we're we're in April, one trophy in the bank, and three more still in play. So you can't say, oh, it's not going to happen because there's a very real chance it can happen. I mean, City need to beat Brighton on Saturday and then one of uh, Wolves or Watford at the end of May to win the FA Cup. And they just need to win six games in a row to win the Prem. You know, it's just the uh, it's the Champions League that's really kind of uh, really bothering me because that's the one that's always gotten away. And uh, Tottenham is going to come out ready to play in those two legs, especially with the new stadium. And I'm just looking at everything going in, and I just don't think they're going to have the horses to get the Champions League done. I think... At this point, the treble is more likely than the quadruple, and I'm absolutely not complaining about that. I don't think anyone would complain about a domestic treble. So do you think they're going to – Is it? will they slip up against City, or will it be like having to play Barcelona, having to play Juventus? I mean, it would be the winner of Juventus Ajax in the semis if we get by Spurs and then in the final either Barca, Liverpool, United or the very slim chance of Porto I think it's going to go out I don't want to say this but I think it's going to end up going out in the semis I think I just think that Juventus team is they have nothing left to play for except the Champions League so I think they're going to put everything into that competition. I think they're going, and they have the experience in the competition. I think they'll do enough to get bias in the semis. And you've seen Ronaldo is nothing if not a big game player. Yeah, I mean, you look at that second leg against Atletico. I thought I thought it was done and dusted, but Atletico played incredibly defensively and just folded up shop. And the thing about this Juve team this year is that they haven't looked incredible even though they're absolutely dominating Serie A but they're just getting it done and I think Ajax can give them a fight but I think they're too young overall and I just think that overall experience level they have especially on the big stage is going to be enough well certainly Ronaldo would want to win for himself and to prove that this move was correct but Certainly, if he could be the one to knock out City, you know, given given his pedigree, I'm sure that would be that would be something he would also relish. I'm sure, and it would also kind of feed the uh, Guardiola semifinal narrative that's been going on for the last few years. It, I will say it's it's definitely wide open. I mean, I could you know, other than you know Porto and Ajax, I mean, I think you could realistically 
even even United, I think, you know, you could make a case for all of them. I mean, United's starting to stumble a little, but you know, you never you know, if you know they pulled off that game in PSG with you know half a team and full of nobodies, then you know you would certainly give them a chance to upset you know a very mediocre Barcelona team if if Messi's off. That's true, but I think what you said earlier about them starting to slip is very true. I mean, they lost in the league yesterday to Wolves. They lost in the Cup to Wolves a couple of weeks ago. They're kind of they're starting to shake a little bit, and they really have nothing left to play for except the Champions League and a Champions League spot in the top four. So I think they're kind of uh, kind of running out of things to focus on. It could be a uh, depressing end of the season for them. Yeah, and all we are left for is, you know, to try to quote win the quote unquote Everton Cup, as they call it on the Guardian podcast. You know, can they finish? I mean, I don't think they really deserve to finish seventh. I mean, I think if they finish ninth behind Wolves and Watford, I think that's about where they belong. Because, I mean, those two, I mean, you know, Watford didn't look that, I mean, hasn't looked that great. But, uh, you know, Wolves is certainly, you know, I think they're very deserving as being the best of the rest. Yeah, Wolves have had a, a great season, even though their uh, draw against City, and I want to say match week two, only came about because of an offside handball. But I digress. They've they've really been entertaining this year. They haven't just kind of been trying to scrape results by like a Huddersfield or a Brighton. They've been going all out, been playing really entertaining, and they'll deserve any kind of result they get. The funny thing that I heard someone say today is that they've been like the weird promoted side where they've been better against the good teams than the bad teams. And if they would have beaten like the team, like they lost twice to Huddersfield, and, you know, they've also slipped up. I guess there's a couple of the other teams at the bottom. Like, if they would have won all of those matches, I think I think they'd either be, like, tied with United or, like, right right below them. So they would be actually be in the race for the top six if they would have won the quote-unquote games they should have won. Yeah, I mean, they've got 47 points uh, from 32 matches, so they'll probably finish the year maybe around 60 or so. So, I mean, if you throw in just some of those drop points, I mean – They've lost 11 matches, which is really high. If they can just pull some uh, extra points out of those matches next season, they'll, they'll be shooting for a top six spot. Yeah, and they, I mean, they're certainly, they're certainly bankrolled. And, you know, I don't know who the, who the Portuguese free agent of choice that George Mendez represents that they could be, could be brought into Wolves, but you know they're going to be they're going they're at least going to be in the Europa League so that will attract a certain level of candidate that you know Mendez can can place there so yeah i you know they've got a very bright future certainly brighter than ours unfortunately as always joe i want to thank you for doing the show today people can check out your work at awful announcing and if they want to check it out on twitter you are at joe underscore toc want to thank everybody for listening and we will talk to everybody next time